Thanks, Scott, and thanks, worship team, for calming my nerves to an extent, preparing us for uh, and leading us in worship and preparing us for the next couple of weeks. Consistent with what was previously announced, there are absentee ballots for the affirmation vote uh, by the boxes in the back, I'm told. I've not seen them, but I trust that they are there. If uh, you need an absentee ballot, you're not going to be here next week. Contrary to what was previously announced, this week's message and next week's message are not going to answer all of your questions about uh, biblical and or theological controversies. This is where we are as a church body. This is what we are seeking, we are praying for, we are endeavoring toward even as we study the Word of God together through these days, we are seeking unity in the church. That's a worthy goal. It's the last thing Jesus prayed for before he was arrested, unjustly convicted, beaten, humiliated, crucified, and yet anticipating all of that, what was on his mind as he spoke with the Father was the unity of the church. The unity of his disciples. Present to his day and also those who would believe by their word, which includes even such disciples as at Grace Bible Church Satterton in March, soon to be April 2022. We're seeking unity. And the Bible, God's Word, as it fulfills the want ad of unity, the Bible is a source of unity. The Bible is also a source of Division in good ways and bad ways. We live in a wicked world. We live in a culture that's hostile to the things of God, the purposes of God, the ways of God. So there are some ways in which the Bible calls us to be distinct from the world. That's a form of division. The enemies of the soul are the world, the flesh, and the devil, and resisting those requires some division, even some opposition. So the Bible can be a source of guiding us as to how to be a distinct people. Our own church body, Grace Bible Church, was founded in June of 1945. I was not here at the time. I was not even on planet Earth at the time. We do have uh, generations that uh, derive from that original body of Grace Bible Church. And uh, I learned yesterday at the, uh, the luncheon uh, commemorating uh, the life of uh, Eleanor Moyer, I was, uh, I was at the older person's table. Some of you are thinking to yourselves, well, that's no surprise. You yourself are older now, Todd. But uh, I learned yesterday that we have one last surviving member of the original uh, charter membership of Grace Bible Church 
uh, Jenny Culp. Is Jenny here today? Okay, there's your chance, Jenny. She's perhaps watching, uh, watching online. Anyway, we still have a founding member uh, still, still alive. She's 100 years old. Uh, I and my family have been members of Grace Bible Church for over 40 years. To my ears, that sounds like a lot. But there are people in our body that have been members of Grace Bible Church for nearly double that. But our own church, Grace Bible Church, was founded in part to be defenders and obeyers and seekers of the Word of God over against bodies at the time who were not as faithful. Now, there's actually scriptural precedent, scriptural warrant for that kind of recognition of the power and authority and the, the demand for obedience of God's Word. Familiar passages, your word I've hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Your word is a lamp to my feet. All scriptures inspired by God. In the end, at every seminary class I teach to this day at Missio Seminary, there are points in the class where we're dealing with points of controversy, and I try to make a point of saying it at least one time every semester. In the end, the authority in this class is God's word, not Todd's word. And there are occasions where they're a little different. <laughs> uh, they're different. In the end, it's God's word that is inspired. We're called upon to obey God's word. Our seeking proper interpretation of God's word, the Bible, is to obey it, to submit to it. Not look for the loopholes, not find a way around it, to obey and submit to the authority of God's Word. And it has some dividing power. In fact, Hebrews tells us uh, it divides uh, soul and our joints and marrow. It's piercing, it's penetrating. Romans 13 tells us we're generally called upon to submit to the authority of the government. But in Acts 5, the government was pressing the disciples of Jesus, now resurrected, to do things or be prohibited from doing what they knew God's word was calling them to do. And they said, in the end, we must obey God rather than men. We're called to that kind of commitment, obedience, and submission even today. That has not changed. Now, that said, that recognized, there are some puzzling teachings in the Bible. There's some puzzling stuff. And uh, I, I could have listed several examples, but uh, I'll list just two that I don't think are controversial. There's some things that may be controversial as we move along. I don't think these two will be particularly controversial, though. <clears throat> Is God really okay with slavery? You know, that's, at least that's not controversial to us. 100 years ago, 150 years ago, particularly where I was born and raised, uh, that, that was a point of controversy for some. But uh, 
There are passages even in the New Testament. I mean, look at that. 1 Peter 2. That's, that's seven books away from the final book of the Bible. And that's, that's counting 2nd and 3rd John and Jude as real books. I mean, they're, they're page long. I mean, you're almost to the end of the Bible, and you've got what could sound like defenses, endorsements of slavery. When you add the Old Testament to that, there's lots of slavery mentioned, seemingly endorsed, seemingly affirmed, seemingly recognized without being countered. And what about polygamy? And I, I mean, ab what seems like abject chauvinism. I'm not talking about the more controversial uh, home passages, but where it sounds like women are treated like property. And a, a husband or a, a, uh, a, a would-be husband negotiates with a father over price of uh, the, the bride. But, you know, polygamy, including patriarchs, uh, Jacob, uh, David. I mean, godly men of God who had multiple wives that aren't ever smitten down dead for that. <laughs> In fact, it's hard to see where they're ever even rebuked for it. What do we do with that? Well, one possible explanation, or one explanation among a set of explanations. We're going to hit more than one, but this one's a pretty central one. Is that the Bible is consisted of snapshots that form not just individual snapshots, but a motion picture. All right, so, so that what we're given in the Bible is a plot line that's going somewhere. So the Bible and the ethic prescribed, not just described, but prescribed by the Bible in its context. So it's properly translated. That can be a problem. You know, was it translated right from the Greek or the Hebrew or sometimes Aramaic? But was it translated properly? Are you, are you interpreting rightly in context? That can be a problem. Let's say you're doing all that, but you still have these things. You still have these puzzling elements. What do you do with it? Well, the Bible, when it's written, to the audience that it's written to, the time and the context to which it is written is always, 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 always redemptive. It addresses people where they are. And it's always redemptive. It's always a step in the right direction. But it's not always done. In other words... There's more redemption yet beyond what this specific verse or this specific passage may say. And so where it can be really puzzling is when biblical teaching now seeping through our culture, as corrupt as it is, as ungodly as it is, but biblical teaching, Christianity, even nominal Christianity, as it seeped into our culture, and 
People, either by accident or despite themselves and the culture, have come to recognize certain biblical principles and they've become enculturated. There are points at which our culture and time or our practice may actually represent a more redemptive yet principle or ethic or practice than what the Bible at the time and place that it was first written manifests. That's where it gets puzzling. On some points, the Bible can feel, can seem regressive. If Paul the Apostle were writing today, I don't think he would say flatly, slaves, you're a slave, obey your masters. I don't think he would say that today. In fact, there are places where we can see where he, where he says to slaves, you know, if you're a slave, don't worry about it. You can still serve God But 1 Corinthians 7. Now, if you can get your freedom, that's better yet. But don't spend your life in bitterness chafing over the fact that you're a slave. That kind of thing. Meaning, the Bible is not just a flat and is not intended to be read as a flat document, static document. There's a plot line. There's a trajectory that the Bible itself is pointing to as the ultimate ethic. Now, that does not solve all the problems, all right? This is still debated, still discussed. It puts, it puts the questions on a higher plane, maybe. By the way, th this is exactly Frederick Douglass's hermeneutical approach to the United States Constitution. It's also the approach of Clarence Thomas. It's, it's, it's actually a conservative approach. That is, the document itself is fine. The ideals represented in the document itself are fine. It's just written in a culture and time in which the ideals are not yet met. That's the basic heart of it. Now, this adds a layer of complication. It does. It does. In fact, I have a... Uh, a colleague, a friend, he's probably more like a collegial acquaintance. But Kevin Van Hooser, who teaches at, uh, at, at Wheaton, affirms a version of this. In fact, his, his book is Drama of... Anyway, but he says, there is potential in this. He affirms this. He affirms this approach to reading the Bible. But he says, we need to realize, we need to recognize that some of this can open up what he calls... This is his phrase, hermeneutical mischief. Hermeneutics, that's a 50-cent word for interpreting. I mean, because we all come to the Bible in some degree already knowing what it teaches, right? Or at least hoping it says this. And anyway, you, you can have nefarious people. No one you know, of course. <laughs> but there can be people that can, that can sneak things into this, into the unfolding drama of this, and... Do mischief, that's true. Well, all right, this is interesting. Might be interesting for a seminary class. Is there anything to this in the Bible itself? The, the ball guy looks kind of skeptical. <laughs> is there anything to this in the Bible itself? Well, I'm going to try to give 
just one clear example. It's not the only example, but one clear one. I'm going to start here. With a debate within rabbinic Judaism. So rabbis. Rabbis taking scripture seriously at the time of Christ. At the time of Christ, there were two schools of thought. They, both, they may both have been alive at the time of Jesus. If they were, they were very old. But they probably died just before. They may have been alive when Jesus was born, but probably not when he started his ministry. But anyway, they started schools of thought, rabbinic schools. They were both Pharisees. They were both part of the Sanhedrin. But they were rivals. Shammai, Shammai the strict, Hillel the loose. <laughs> At least that was their reputation. Shammai was very strict. In fact, the, the, the summary, this is a Jewish summary. Uh, Rabbi Shammai binds, Rabbi Hillel loosens. Shammai was more strict. So, <laughs> I have them on the right side as I'm looking at you, you know. <laughs> Shammai was the far right. Hillel was more left, if you want to go right, left. Anyway. Among the many passages and principles that they debated was Deuteronomy 24. Here's Deuteronomy 24, uh, reading just a, 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 a pretty, well, a pretty literalistic translation. I'll tap into some of it as we go. This is Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. This is Torah. This is, this is the regulatory prescriptive section of the Bible. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes. He overtones her. He can't stand to look at her anymore. That's, that's the overtone. Because he's found some indecency in her. More on that in a second. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. If the latter husband... Likewise, turns against her, and likewise, writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, that is the first one, who sent her away, gave her the writ of divorce. Her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she's been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. That's an abomination before Yahweh. Before Yahweh. You shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now if you wonder what the context is, as you go into 5, uh, verse 5, Deuteronomy goes into, if a person is married, they should have uh, time for their honeymoon. It's those kind of things. But this, this is the last thing that's said. The only thing that's said about divorce in Torah. <clears throat> the rabbis debated this. The focus of their debate, we actually have their rabbinic writings, so can, can trace it. The focus of their debate 
uh, really focused on this phrase. I actually printed out the Hebrew for if you're interested in seeing it afterward. Ki matzah ba ervat. Because he's found in her ervat. The literal Hebrew word means nakedness. It's commonly used metaphorically, though, to mean indecency. So the lines of debate went something like this. What, what does she have to do for this to apply? Hillel emphasized kimatsa. And, and in fact, the second phrase, look at that. It doesn't even state why. It just says if the second husband finds something you know, indecent. It doesn't, doesn't even state why. So Hillel said, eh, it's up to him. It's up to him what he finds or what. Eh, it's up to him. He, he decides. He, he decides. He finds. It's up to the husband what he finds. Shemai said, Ervat, that's nakedness. That's he's walking on her naked. She, that's, that's, he's, that's talking about adultery. That, that's the rabbinic debate. In Matthew 19, they bring this to Jesus. Now, I can kind of hear the debate in my head, but I wasn't there. I wasn't. I have, however, for real, heard the Bubba version of this. The Bubba version of this goes like this. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> I understand in the Bible, it says if a, if a man is displeased with his, with his wife, he, he can send her out and, and give her a divorce. All right, I think you're talking about Deuteronomy 24. There's actually, oh, you don't need to give me all your book learning on it. What I'm interested in, my question is, just how displeased does a husband have to be before he can do that? <laughs> See, I've actually heard that version of this very rabbinic interpretive question. Matthew 19, they take it to Jesus. Matthew 19 they do to Rabbi Jesus, applying for the position of Messianic King. By the way, Jesus would have been about 32 at the time of this, just, just saying, just observing and passing. And they did to him in Matthew 19, kind of what we did with Aaron Miservi. By the way, is that his real name? Pastor me serving? Is, it, is his middle name, I'm here to meet your every desire? I, I'm in, but anyway. Anyway. Anyway, I digress. Absentee ballots in the back. Anyway. It's a great name for a pastor, just saying. Me serving. Um, the overtones of this don't have to be necessarily sinister. Now, knowing the Pharisees, they're, they're angling for something. But they're, they're testing him. They, they are quizzing him regarding Jesus' biblical orthodoxy. 
And they take to him this question. Now, I don't have PowerPoint slides on Matthew 19. It's page 1002 uh, in your pew Bible if you want to follow along. Um, we're doing unity of the church looking at the Bible. You probably ought to look at your Bible, <laughs> all right? But picking up at verse 3, they came to him and say, uh, essentially, Deuteronomy 24, we got this debate. What say you, Jesus? What's it take? What's, what's according to Torah? What's legitimate grounds for a man to give his wife, with whom he's displeased, a writ of divorce and send her away? Jesus replies with an intertextual mashup of Genesis 127 and Genesis 224 by which he derives the pattern of God's design and purpose for marriage. Now, I'll go through what he, what, he does, what he says, but Jesus, without ever addressing Deuteronomy 24, goes to Genesis 126 and Genesis 224 and says, haven't you read? One of the principles I'm going to suggest to you is Jesus makes the proper approach to interpreting the Bible very clear, but the way Jesus consistently speaks, it sounds like we should have known this already. In other words, Jesus doesn't respond, oh, that's Deuteronomy 24. <laughs> Bible schmeibel, Torah shmora. I'm here now, just, just listen to me. Don't worry about any of that. He, ne he never says that. He never does that. He says, you're reading it wrong. Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Aren't you supposed to be some hotshot Bible theology professor or something, Nicodemus? You know, I, shouldn't you know how to interpret the Bible, Dr. Nicodemus? You, you really shouldn't need me to tell you this. That's how Jesus responds here. Haven't you read? At the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. And for this cause, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, therefore, let no one separate. That's not just sexual, but it is also sexual. Look at God's creative design of male and female. He's actually created male and female anatomically, so that they form a conjunctive union. That's as graphic as I'm going to get, y'all, okay? Can't you see God's creative design of male and female? He's designed for there to be a union that's full and complete and permanent. So why the heck are you asking me about what you have to do 
to dissolve that. Don't dissolve that. The Pharisees respond, bip, 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 bip. We, we got Deuteronomy 24 right here. Deuteronomy 24. Moses commanded us to give a writ of divorce. Oh, what about that? What about, don't you know your Bible? Jesus spread Deuteronomy 24. What about that? Jesus says, read it again, guys. Moses didn't command diddly squat. There's no commanding here. Look at it. When a man does this, when this happens, when this happens, the only thing God says about it is, you send your wife away in divorce, just know this, buddy, you are not ever going to get her back. You're hard-hearted, that's Jesus. Your hard-heartedness says you're going to treat your wives this way, and I know you well. But what you're not going to do is be wife-swapping back and forth. That you're not going to do. Now, we have to infer what all Jesus means by hardness of heart. We, we, don't, have, we don't have to speculate too much, given what ancient Near Eastern culture was like. Women quickly outnumbered men two to one. Three to one, four to one. Well, why are you saying that, Todd? How, what was the number? Well, tell me how recently was the, re, was the most devastating war. Because it was a barbaric, warfaring culture in which the men got killed off. Not only did the men get killed off, but a woman that was not under the protection of some kind of well-armed military band was subject to kidnapping, rape, sex trafficking, which may be why God was willing to wink at polygamy. It's not good, but it may be the best of less than good options. But Moses permitted this because of your hardness of heart. From the beginning, it was not God's design. He did not intend for it to be this way. So the phenomenon that Jesus alerts us to is a certain topography in biblical interpretation. That is, the Bible is not intended, is not designed to be read as just one flat cut of cloth. There's a topography about it of things that are central, things that are more peripheral, things that are greater, things that are lighter. Things that are ideal, the, the ideal is for there to be husband, wife for life. That's the ideal. Deuteronomy 24 is a concession to regulate less than ideal. Now, once you begin looking for seeing this principle, you can see it other places too. Leviticus 20.10 is the only thing the, the Old Testament ever says about what to do if somebody commits adultery. Leviticus 20.10 clarifies, makes clear, that's a capital offense. Somebody commits adultery, 
put the adulterer, the adulteress, to death. That's a, that's a, that's a death offense. This would have been, well, if you're looking for a specific verse, this is the one verse that Joseph, New Testament Joseph, adoptive, became adoptive father of Jesus, not biological father, <laughs> but uh, adoptive father of Jesus. When Mary went away to visit her cousin Elizabeth and he got the news that she's turned up pregnant. Now, their marriage hadn't been consummated yet, but they had made their vows to one another. They were betrothed. So Joseph could have. Joseph could have. He finds out that Mary is pregnant. He could have Bubba Pharisee'd it. I don't know how she got pregnant. But I know I'm not the baby daddy. And what am I supposed to do? Well, Leviticus 20 says, I can have her hind part stoned to death. <laughs> I can prosecute her to the full extent of the law. God says it. I believe it. I'm going to do it. Give me the bumper stripper to put it on my car. And Mary, we need to talk about this. Meet me over by the stone pile. <laughs> me and my buddy's going to join you there. He could have done that. Leviticus 20 says Joseph could have prosecuted her right to full stoning to death. Matthew 1 tells us this is how Joseph responded. Birth of Jesus was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, so he hadn't had sex, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now Mary knows that, Matthew knows that, we know that, but Joseph did not know the by the Holy Spirit part. What's Joseph supposed to think? Joseph did not want to disgrace her, so decided to not go zero to 120, prosecute her to the full extent of the law, but take something like a Deuteronomy 24 out and says, I'm going to divorce her. In fact, I'm going to be private about it. Now, if this were a seminary class, I would ask, why does Joseph do that? I'm tempted to ask you that. <laughs> Can I just observe it is not, it is not because Joseph, see, is a liberal Bible reader. And he's now investigated the Torah and said, eh, yin, yang, yada, yada, I'm actually okay with adultery now. I mean, I know it says you're not supposed to commit adultery, but ah, uh, fluffy cotton candy, uh, fairy princess, you know, we got to be gracious, adultery is okay. That is not what Joseph says. Joseph is heartbroken. Joseph probably feels more than most of us the righteousness of why adultery is a capital offense. 
This is a violation against God, yes, but it's also a violation against me. I trusted that woman. And here she, I mean, I, I don't, I, it's just not like Mary. I, I, don't, I mean, I don't know what happened, a momentary lapse or something. It's not her character. I mean, I can't marry her. I mean, I'm not, you know, not going to be such a, a wussy, whipped, joke marriage that she's going to sleep around and I, I can't trust her anymore but I but now I, I don't have the heart to, to stone her to death because he loves her because he loves her now I get, I get that what intrigues me some is that when the Holy Spirit inspires Matthew to write this up, the Holy Spirit clarifies that that Joseph took this approach because he was a righteous man. Not because he was a wimp. Not because he didn't have the fortitude to defend biblical truth. But he was a righteous man that understood the Torah was never designed to be this kind of stone as soon as possible kind of law code. And of course, son Jesus elaborates and expands that, makes that even more clear. The phenomenon that Matthew 19 alerts us to is a flaw in the Pharisee's hermeneutic. Hermeneutic, 50-cent word for approach to interpreting the Bible. Now, you want something that, uh, that can scare you to death a little bit? Scares me. The, these Pharisees, these, these bubble-headed, bungling Pharisees with their terrible approach to the Bible... Their problem was not Bible knowledge. They knew their Bible well. Their problem was not lack of facility in the biblical languages. I'm glad to be able to study the scriptures in the original languages of Greek and Hebrew. I enjoy that. These guys read it in. That was their natural language. They, they didn't have to use a Hebrew lexicon. <laughs> I mean, they, they knew Hebrew. They spoke Greek. Their problem, the Pharisees' problem, was not lack of understanding biblical authority. They understood the Bible as God's inspired word. That was not their problem. They had some problem with hypocrisy. That is, they knew what it said, didn't practice it themselves, but put it on others. So that was part of the problem. That's not actually the problem in Matthew 19, though. The problem in Matthew 19 is a problem in the Pharisees' hermeneutic approach to the Bible. They knew the Bible. They valued Bible knowledge. They valued biblical authority. They had a problem in their approach to interpreting that is remarkably similar to the approach of 20th, 20th, 21st century fundamentalism that I grew up in. 
Some of you may say, now wait a minute, Todd, didn't you grow up in Grace Bible Church? Well, after I came up from Mechanicsville, Virginia, Emanuel Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia, um, yeah, we came up in the late 1970s, came to Grace Bible Church, and I learned, I still affirm, biblical knowledge, biblical authority, But some of what I've had to unlearn is a pharisaical approach to biblical interpretation. Which is, the Pharisees treated the Bible as though it's designed to be a list of absolute rules and laws, each verse a universally applicable axiom. That is a principle to be universally applied. So the approach the Pharisees took and sprung on Jesus went like this. Atomize, extract, absolutize. The Pharisaical approach was atomize, Extract, absolutize. Atomize, extract, absolutize. If I were more of a Pharisee, I'd be a couple pounds lighter, I think. You'd just about do a, do a workout on that. Atomize, extract, absolutize. And it was a well-meaning hermeneutic. It's God's word, so it's got to be, every verse got to be absolute. But Jesus says, now wait a minute, you're reading it wrong. You need to read this as a motion picture by which you get to know the character of God. Not as a rule book to be lifted and mindlessly applied. Or maybe not mindlessly, but less than fully thoughtfully applied. Jesus is actually one that corrects this. Remember, Jesus is just making it clear. That's, that's never the way the Bible was designed to work. This actually isn't new with Jesus correcting this. Jesus is just making it clear. Pharisees, on it. That's, that's not the way God designed his word to work, ever. He didn't give it that way. Matthew 23, Jesus is railing against the Pharisees because of this hermeneutic. You know, it's wonderful, guys, that you tithe the spring onions that grow up wild in your yard, or you're, you've got a raspberry bush. You know, it's, I know, it's mint and cumin, but I'm not quite sure I'd recognize mint or cumin if I saw it today. But the, the modern-day equivalent, you know, spring onions that grow up in your or the raspberries that grow up in a bush. It's great that you tithe those, you know, that you're so fastidious in your tithing of those. But those are small potato things. You're actually fastidiously, zealously applying that while ignoring the greater matters, the weightier matters of justice.
according to Jesus, concerns for justice is not some sort of sinister invasion of false teaching into the church. You know, there's a movement about that's trying to claim that today among people who affirm biblical authority in some cases. Jesus' concern for justice is actually at the heart of what the Bible is about. Mercy and faithfulness. There are weightier matters and there are lighter matters. Similar principle in Matthew 22. A lawyer, that is someone well studied in the law, don't get his name, doctor somebody, <laughs> doctor rabbi somebody. What's the greatest commandment, Jesus? <clears throat> Jesus does not respond, greatest, greatest, greatest. It's all absolute truth. There's no cut of cloth. It's all absolute. There is no greater. There's no greatest. It's all equally the word of God. Jesus does not respond that way. He says, actually, there is a greatest commandment. It's Deuteronomy 6.5. It's, it's not even specifically in the Decalogue. It's not one of the ten. It's actually a summary of the first tablet of the Decalogue. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Now, Dr. Schmuckenberg, you didn't ask me what the second greatest is, but I'll tell you. Second greatest is like unto it. Leviticus 19.8, which summarizes the second tablet of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know what? You focus on those two. It's not that you disregard the rest of the other six, 600. You'll end up doing those other 600. Applicably appropriate to the context and time in which you live. In other words, what Jesus is getting at is that Scripture is not just a, one cut of cloth, there's a topography. And I've got to move along fast now. There's a scriptural terrain in which there are greater matters, I'm sorry, in which there are ideals and concessions. Realize there's nothing in Deuteronomy 24 that says, this, reader, O oh reader, is a concession. Jesus says, you should have recognized it as such by reading the plot line of Scripture to know that that's not what God actually wants. There are ideals, concessions. There are greater matters. There are lighter matters. This is actually a biblical tension. Even the atonement... I've got to move along. I can't take too much of a digression here. Even the atonement is an example of God being something like self-conflicted on this. It's why you get second person in the Trinity embodied in human flesh. We're about to celebrate it in a week or two and commemorate it. Second person in the Trinity embodied in human flesh, bleeding and in pain on the cross saying, Eloi, Eloi, lamaxabachthani. He's speaking Aramaic, his native tongue. He, he speaks the language of the Bible with a southern accent because he's, he, he's, he's from the country of, of Galilee. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not normal. 
It's because there's a tension in Scripture between God's redemptive grace, not lovey-dovey fairy princess cuddle bunny grace, redemptive grace. Grace of God meets a person where they are but never leaves the person where they are. It doesn't just give them a noogie and say, oh, I wish you wouldn't do that, oh, but come on in, though. It's always redemptive. Meets the person where they are, but demands the next step of repentance, the next step of uh, repentance and obedience. Whether you're a serial killer, a child molester, an adulterer, a thief, there's no place so deep or too dark where the grace of God cannot reach you. But it doesn't just excuse and forgive it. It demands redemption, okay? Redemptive grace versus righteous justice. That's also carefully worded. It's not just strict mindless justice. It's not just, read it, apply it. It's righteous justice. And there's an interplay between those that requires a level of spirit-enabled wisdom to apply in specific situations context. And then more clear versus less clear, that's actually next week. Now, this is a little bit seminary ease. I'll go fast. But those of you looking for, all right, bottom line, how do we approach reading the Bible? Axiomatic, general rules of thumb, hermeneutical for reading and interpreting the Bible. I should have have reworded that for a Sunday morning message. That's the truth. But uh, start with the ideal. You ought to at least know what the ideal is. Sift through and get to what the ideal is first. What's God's ultimate desire in this matter? And then and only then do you think about, all right, what concessions are possibly permissible? A concession is something less than ideal, but better than the worst. You make a concession when there's some sort of extenuating factors that make less than the ideal possible or likely. Keeping in mind the difference between description and prescription, not everything the Bible describes is it endorsing, is it prescribing, and then also to be considered, we actually hit this, is there room for redemptive grace in this? Is this a greater matter or a lighter matter? And just how clear is the scriptures leading? All right, land in the plane. Bible is a source of unity. Bible is also a source of division. In good ways and bad ways. So question for you and me this morning is, how are you using the Bible? Especially as we're in the midst of a, well, an intense season as a culture, as a church. I didn't know I was going to be following the pastoral candidate and preceding the pastoral vote when I agreed to do do this, but here we are. Um, But I chose that picture deliberately because we're seeking to pass the faith on. We're seeking to pass the discipleship of Christ on to people that are, well, considerably younger than me anyway. How are you using the Bible? Are you using it to get to know God? 
the character of God. The way God tends to operate. That's actually why God gives us his word. That's what the Bible is actually for. It's not actually given to us as a rule book. The Bible is actually given us to get to know the person of God. Using the Bible for self-help. All right, you could do worse. And, you know, some of us are in the habit of reading our daily bread or whatever each morning and, you know, getting an encouraging word for the day from the Bible. All right, it's more Bible of self-help. You could do worse. Just realize that's not actually what the Bible is for. It'd be good if, it'd be good if you can to incorporate some here in, sometime here in the next four or five years uh, reading the Bible through, the, through the, uh, the year or through three years. So you get a feel for the biblical plot line. That would be better. Are you using the Bible for self-advancement? Now that's actually a problem using the Bible to advance me or my position or my viewpoint? Are you studying the Bible to win an argument? And none of you would do that. I have done it. (laughs) Uh, Man, this this is an occupational hazard in in academia. Honest to goodness, it is. Um, At this stage of life and career, I've actually had people pay me money to craft a theological argument. I mean, that's, there's danger in this for other people, right? <laughs> there's danger in it. In fact, that's a lot of times what got the Pharisees in trouble. They so knew what the Bible taught. They so knew that they were right that they only read it to advance their view. Well, how bad is that? It's bad enough that they missed the Messiah. Bad enough that they crucified their Messiah king, rabbi, would-be shepherd. can be that bad. Truth is, there are lots of ways to use the Bible. Some good some not so good, as the Bible itself reveals. Remember Jesus quoted the greatest commandment? That's from the next verse, Deuteronomy 6, 5. Deuteronomy 6, 4 is, Hear, O Israel, Shema, Israel. Yahweh, your God, is one. You believe that, you know that, you've memorized that, you practice it, that is great. Demons also regard that as authoritative and accurate and true. And they've actually memorized it in the Hebrew. (laughs) Truth is, the devil knows the Bible too. You realize that two of the three temptations of Jesus in the wilderness by the devil. The devil is quoting the Bible to Jesus. Now he's ripping it out of context. He's not reading it right. But two of the three temptations, the devil actually uses Scripture to try and tempt Jesus. Tells you the Bible's not just a set of absolutes to... 
So James 2.19 in mind. Devil also knows the Bible. Here's James 3. Am I using the Bible correctly? Am I reading the Bible correctly? The Bible actually helpful, helpfully gives us a diagnostic set of tests. Who among you is wise and understanding? I mean, you're promulgating this biblical, wise-sounding argument. Well, show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. Now, if you have bitter jealousy or selfish ambition in your heart, well, don't be arrogant and lie against the truth. That's not godly wisdom. That is earthly. That's, that's worldly, natural, fleshly. Woo, demonic. The devil can be in the details of that, sowing strife and dissension. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder in every evil thing, and that's not from God. The wisdom from above is first pure. It's not an anything goes kind of an approach. It's first pure, but peaceable, gentle, reasonable, can reason well and can be reasoned with full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, without hypocrisy. The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. How are you using the Bible? Because the truth is, there are lots of ways to use the Bible. Some good, some not so good, as the Bible itself reveals. It's a powerful tool, a powerful way of getting to know God, God has given us. If we approach it aright and led by his spirit. Let's pray. Father God, you've given us a great gift. It's capable of being misused, abused. We don't want to do that. We want to be unified around the truth. We want to be unified around righteousness. We want to be unified around your purposes. We ask you for your wisdom, as you've told us we should, as we endeavor to study and understand even your word. We recognize that it's a high and holy calling to do so. Help us to do so well, particularly as we live and live in community and even uh, wrestle with decisions as a community. In Jesus' name, amen.